Today, we bring you yet another deep and emotional episode. We dig into the long history of Afghanistan and the U.S. interference that caused the recent Taliban takeover of the capital city, Kabul. Our guests are organizers and Afghan immigrants whose families have suffered back-to-back wars. Welcome to Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. My name is Luz Maria Frias. I'm a Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I express are solely my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora and Senior Partner at Dendros Group. I'm Don Eubanks, recently retired associate professor from the School of Social Work at Metropolitan State University, associate of Dendros Group and cultural consultant and member of the Malax Band of Ojibwe Indians. And I'm Haley Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. We have a very special program today. We've invited two guests to speak to us about a very difficult topic. We are going to be discussing the turmoil in Afghanistan and, of course, the additional issues regarding the displacement of Afghani people and the struggles and the turmoil associated with living abroad, the diaspora, uh, as well as living in the United States. My heart is heavy just thinking about the suffering, the trauma of millions of people, of course, in Afghanistan, and thinking about all the lives that have been lost as a result of that. And I am here um, hoping to learn so much from our special guests. And I'm going to ask them at this point to introduce themselves. Thanks for having us. Um, I am Nasreen Sajadi. I am an educator and I'm also um, the director of a nonprofit called Brewing Change Collaborative. And we advocate for BIPOC in the brewing industry. And I am Arash Yusufi. Um, I've recently moved to Minneapolis from Los Angeles. I've done about, uh, I've, I've been organizing in Los Angeles for about 20 years. Uh, I moved to Greece to work with refugees there for about three years and uh, met my partner. And now I live in Minneapolis on 38th in Chicago. So right in the thick of it. The news and how we receive the news here in the United States, it's, it's, it's similar to the colonization of different lands around the world, but also quite honestly, the colonization of this own country that we all know, and we've not been shy about colonizing indigenous land for their own purpose. So I invite you then to take us through a historical lesson as best as you can and help us understand the history of Afghanistan, the history from your point of view as an Afghani who has lived there and who has left for uh, a variety of reasons that I'm sure you're going to explore with us. Sure. I mean, there's, there's, there's a long story, so many layers to it. Uh, but to simplify it a bit, 
It actually started a bit uh, before 20 years ago. It started about 40 something years ago. Um, see, Afghanistan is in the middle of Central Asia. Uh, the Silk Road went through it. And it's been a very st important strategic point uh, hist historically because you have China on the east of it. You have Iran on the west of it. You have the Russian Empire on the north of it. And then you got the Indian subcontinent on the south of it. So if you can control Afghanistan, or you can have some kind of military force in Afghanistan, some kind of power in Afghanistan, then you can control the surrounding areas as well. Or you, at least you can keep an eye out on it. And then in today's day and age, with you know the uh, with the politics with China, with Russia, Iran, is very important for the U.S. to have some kind of placement in Afghanistan. Um, so you know, in the uh, in the seventies and the eighties, there was a huge movement in the so-called Middle East. I don't like to call it Middle East because. Middle East of what? Middle East of Europe. Uh, we call it, there's a group of us that's called SWANA. So SWANA stands for Southwest Asia, North African. So it's a decolonial term for Middle East. So in the SWANA region, there was a huge movement in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s for more of a leftist communist movement. And obviously there were the two superpowers at that time for the Cold War, the Russia, you know, the Soviet Union and the US were vying for different groups to have control over that area. In Afghanistan, there was a huge movement to become, you know, to for leftist movement. Um, uh, you know, people fought uh, to bring a communist government to Afghanistan. Uh, not necessarily saying it was a good thing, but a communist government took over uh, and overthrew the monarchy in 1978. They had power for about a year and a half or so. Um, at that time, the U.S. realized that this could be an opportunity for the U.S. to uh, pull the Soviet Union into Af Afghanistan, into their version of Vietnam. Uh, so what the U.S. started to do, the U.S. started funding the opposition groups in Afghanistan, uh, the Mujahideen, uh, to start, you know, to get into war with the communist Afghan government. Uh, and then at that time, the communist Afghan government realized that, you know, the U.S. and the Saudis and the Pakistanis were gaining up and they were too powerful. So like, hey, Russia, can you come help us out? And that's how the proxy war started. Uh, and at that, then Russians came, the Soviets came, the Soviets took over. Uh, they became the, colon the main colonizers. But at the same time, U.S. was pu pulling in millions and billions of dollars into Pakistan and onto Afghanistan to fight back. So it became a proxy war and the Afghans became the pawn for these uh, two superpowers. Uh, that war lasted about 10 years, uh, about uh, two and a half to three million Afghans died in that process. Uh, also a lot of Afghans left Afghanistan, about uh, five to seven million Afghans left during those times. My family was one of them. Um, so there was a war and then the communist government fell in 1991, once the Soviet Union fell as well, uh, at that time it became a free for all. So, you know, all these different groups that were being funded by the US, by Pakistan, by Saudi Arabia, start fighting each other for power. The US kind of left, left it all there for Afghans to fight amongst each other. A lot of people died in that process as well. A lot of people also left. Um, you know, until the Taliban, who are basically the kids of the Mujahideen that were fighting the Soviets and their communist Afghan government in the 80s, these are the kids that grew up in the, you know, in the border towns, uh, in the uh, refugee camps in Pakistan, and that were taught, um, you know, a, a style of uh, Islam in those camps funded by the U.S., a, a very radical style of Islam. Those, the kids of those Mujahideen. Extremist. 
I would say. Very extremist, yeah. So the kids of those Mujahideen end up becoming the, the so-called Taliban. They came into Afghanistan to bring uh, law and order uh, because there, were, there was a lot of fighting in Afghanistan between different groups. And there was actually a lot of, there was a lot of fighting, but it was just more than that. You know, the, the, there was a lot of sexual violence towards women. Uh, there was a lot of uh, corruption. So these Taliban came and brought law and order, their version of law and order. Uh, took over Afghanistan. They also harbored also a lot of extremist groups from uh, from Saudi area and some other parts of Swana. Um, and after 9-11, uh, you know, that the U.S. saw an opportunity to go into Afghanistan, uh, used as, as an excuse and also used, uh, you know, saving poor, helpless, Af- saving Afghan women. They weaponized it. They weaponized it to get an, as an excuse. Yeah to come be white saviors to go save these women. Um, but we all know how that turned out. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and in reality, what they really wanted to do is want, want to have a strategic placement in the central of, uh, in the center of part, in the center of Asia. Uh, and also, as you guys know, now about 90% of uh, the world's opium comes from Afghanistan. So, you know, the pharmaceuticals are making a lot of money off of that and also the illegal trade of uh, heroin. Uh, they all, there was also later on found that, uh, Afghanistan is full of minerals and lithium. So my phones, our computers are full of that as well. Uh, the minerals are worth billions and trillions of dollars. So at that time, you ask, okay, you know, were they going to go in there and make some money? War is also very profitable because the U.S. was funding, uh, still, is still to this day funding Pakistan ISI, which is the Pakistani intelligence service. Uh, and the Pakistan, they're, they're giving them about $4 billion a year. And the Pakistani intelligence service turns that money right back around and funds the, uh, the Taliban and other extremist groups, uh, in Afghanistan. So U.S. is funding both sides as they usually do. Uh, and because war is very profitable, right? And if you have instability in Afghanistan the past 20 years, they gave the U.S. another excuse, like we got to stay in Afghanistan because look, the Taliban are so powerful. Uh, then they're still, you know, they're going to come and harm these helpless, poor Afghan women. Uh, so we got to stay in Afghanistan. But in reality, all they were doing is extracting all the resources they could extract. Uh, and Protecting uh, the opium fields that the Taliban was burning. Protecting the opium fields. Uh, yeah, okay. They, they, they built a few schools in the capital of Kabul. They, the, some Afghan women did have more opportunities. That's true. Uh, they had to do something, right? They had to show some kind of face to the world. Uh, but in reality, you know, if you look at anything outside of Kabul, the situation for women did not change at all. You know, this, the U.S. Def- definitely not going to Afghanistan for any benevolent reasons. Uh, they went in there to do what they always do, to be imperialist uh, colonizers, uh, extract resources, uh, and gain things for themselves. Uh, but I think at a certain point, they also also realized that, you know, having their military in Afghanistan is too costly as well. So I think that's around the time that Trump decided, you know, that might be a good idea to pull the military out and have mercenaries uh, in there instead. So now Afghanistan is full of mercenaries from the West uh, that are protecting uh, the, the, the pipeline that's going through Afghanistan as well that goes into Europe. There's, uh, you know, protecting the companies that are extracting the resources. Uh, so now the mercenaries are there uh, and obviously they don't have to abide by the same rules as well as the military does. Um, so they're a lot more violent. But, uh, you know, the past year or so also, uh, the U.S. has been um, 
you know, has been making plans with the Taliban without the Afghan government involved. So they've been, been making a lot of secret deals behind the scenes, uh, not necessarily behind the scenes, it's, it's public. I mean, the U.S. has been negotiating with the Taliban for the past year, year and a half, uh, and all of a sudden it pulled out, you know, and now the Taliban have taken over. And there's a lot of reports that have come out in the past few days of showing, of saying that how, you know, the, the, all the military that was in Afghanistan, the Afghan military, they were told not to fight back by their higher ups. They were told not to uh, engage in any kind of uh, war with the Taliban. That's why the Taliban were able to just come sweep in and take over the whole country just like they were. Taliban are not really a powerful uh, group. There are about only 80,000 of them with no, with very little military training and not as, met, as many weapons. Uh, that group like that, there's no there's no way they could come take over Afghanistan as much as easy as they did. Uh, the reason they did is because the, you know the military was told to step down, uh, not to fight back. Who issued that order, Arash? You know, the reports are coming out that it was from higher up. There was a very interesting um, radio segment on NPR where they were able to uh, do an interview with uh, one of the folks who worked at the embassy and got their story. And in their story, they bring up the point that you just actually raised, right? The uh, the fact that this this... You know, we had too much too much infrastructure for this to happen in the way that it did. They're, they're, and, and so he raised a very similar question. And this was coming out of the the Afghan embassy here in the United States, where um, the the one of the one of the the workers who are running that embassy um, and their families are now stuck in this in this limbo. Um, and it was just there's this very powerful moment where um, they they make mention of this this tie. He stopped wearing his his um, kind of government stakes and tie because of 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 the hurt of the fall that this happened, and he raised the exact same point that you just raised, right? There, there, there there's there's there there's no way this could have been done without somebody saying, "Don't, don't step up, don't," you know, basically giving the stand down order. Yeah, the Afghan military is three hundred thousand strong with uh, Western uh, equipment. Uh, the Taliban don't have anything close to that. Well, they do have Western equipment. No, they do. The U.S. funds it and Pakistan can buy the same weapons with that money that they get from the U.S. So they do have, they just don't have the same manpower as the Afghan military did. So, Arash, just just to help me understand, because I think, um, you know, because of, because of what we hear here in the United States is filtered so much, and and those of us, you know, even though we we try to look between those messages to figure out what's really going on, but one one thing for me that I think maybe you might be able to help us and our listeners understand is ethnically who 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 makes up Afghanistan, who who's indigenous to that area, who you know what I'm trying to say because. It's confusing to me. It, depending on what news station I'm listening to or what report, for me who considers himself pretty educated, I have a hard time trying to keep track of who's who. And because now we're hearing reports that the Taliban are, are um, killing other uh, members of different other ethnic groups. So for me, it begs the question you know, who, who are. Who are Afghanistani? Uh, yeah, who are, who are uh, Afghans? Yes. Um, it's okay. So we got to go back. Uh, these are obviously colonial borders that were created, right? And these colonial borders were created by the British uh, to <laughs> divide and conquer. 
they created these borders to divide different ethnic groups into different parts of the, the uh, Central Asia. So Afghanistan is a very mountainous country for the most part. It's uh, extremely high mountains, the Hindu Kush mountains um, that go through the middle of Afghanistan. And because of that, there's a lot of cult, there's a lot of cultures, a lot of groups that are very isolated from the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, throughout, uh, you know, history, a lot of groups that wanted to kind of get away from the rest of, you know, uh, Central Asia and the Middle East and other parts of, uh, East Asia as well came to Afghanistan to isolate themselves from the rest of the world. Uh, so there's a lot of different groups, but mostly the way it's set up is, uh, anywhere south of the Hindu Kush mountains. Is a, are the Pashtun people. So the Pashtun people are mostly south of the Hindu Kush mountains and also going to Pakistan as well. And that's part of the British divide and conquer. What the British did, they, they created a line between Afghanistan uh, that separated the, the Pashtuns and, you know, and then they created the country of Pakistan the um, same time as they created the country of Israel. Um, so these are both brand new countries that were created by the British uh, for the most part. Uh, and so they put half of Pashtuns in Pakistan, half of Pashtuns in Afghanistan. And also everything north of the Hindu Kush mountains is a number of different groups. So there's the Tajiks, uh, there's the Azaras that also live within the Hindu Kush mountains as well. Uh, there's, a, there's the Uzbeks. There's a lot of different smaller minor, uh, smaller groups in there as well. So Afghanistan is a colonial country that was, that was the thing is, because let me go back a little bit again. So the British uh, tried to conquer Afghanistan three different times. And, but one of the things they were able to do is every single time the British came, they took a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more. And one of the treaties that was created, uh, in the late, in the mid 1800s by one of the kings of Afghanistan is like, okay, you guys stop coming into Afghanistan and we'll give you everything that you've taken so far. What happened in Afghanistan is that, you know, a lot of different ethnic groups that were rivals for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years were forced to be under one border. So obviously that's going to create rivalries, right? And that's a very strategic thing that the British do. They, they did it all over the world. They did it all over Africa as well. There's the Swana regions, the Middle East regions, that they put different ethnic groups within one border. So they are always fighting each other, you know, and they, they make, they, they draw, drew lines to, to divide everybody. That way those countries and those places never prosper. So they were never powerful enough because they're always in rivalry within, within the borders themselves. This is um, this is indicative of some of the things that we've talked about before. Um, and Clee, and I'm, I'm I'm sure that it's ringing bells for you too. Um, in that we see the the meddling, what happens when we push in and mess with boundaries, mess with peoples, mess with things that are already there. In this context, in Afghanistan, we've seen the same thing that happened in the secret war for our Hmong brothers and sisters who are here, right? And having to deal with the aftermath of what's that whenever we've pushed in. We see it all across South South and Central America, right? This this when when empire pushes in and then pulls and pulls back and in and, and what happens with the folks in the place that's there. And so we see this pattern happen over and over again. And then decisions that have to be made afterwards about what what responsibility do we take? Right. And then there's all the maneuvering about how we alleviate other things that make us look bad and try to um, put a humanitarian spin on there. But we, we, I think an important thing that we, we have to understand in, in this experience and every other experience where we, by our actions in the United States, have created the refugee situation that exists, um, have to understand our role prior to the moment. 
Because if we don't do that, and I think and your history is helping us to 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 do that, is then we it's a lot easier for us to push back and say and try to wipe our hands of something or 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 to try to focus on this quote unquote situation now and have no responsibility for our role all the way, all along the way, whether it's us, whether it's the British, whether it's prior to the British, the Romans, or the other empires who are trying to play in that area. Um, and so I, I think it's very important to be able to point out that role and, and make sure that we have that through line of responsibility that's part of this conversation. The amount of information that we have continuously received here in the U.S. by U.S. media is often filtered through a lens, a white lens, I should say, based on white centrality. So we want to understand this conflict in Afghanistan through your own eyes. And we want to understand and learn about the conflict itself, but also the historical context leading up to today's conflict. And we invite you to be very honest with your comments. I understand it is likely to be very painful for you to go through that. Yeah, there's a lot of trauma. And retelling it and reliving the trauma that comes with that. And for that, I apologize in advance. I do know that it will be hard for you to recount it, but it's also very valuable valuable for us to hear it. We want to understand as you go forward the role of UA of the United States government and the role of other governments that may have also um, interfered with Afghanistan and also initiated conflicts of their own. Nasreen, earlier you made a comment about the US government um, exploiting the issue of the suffering and rights of women and children in Afghanistan. And I think that really is something that we should dig in deeper because that continues to be the narrative that we hear today. And ever since this escalated, we continue to see that and hear that message over and over again. Then the second part of my question is along the lines of trauma, both for the families who have endured it there over the 40 plus years and the families across the diaspora in the world and here in the United States, it is just mind boggling to understand and wrap my mind around how there's entire generation having to face these complexities. And we're thinking about economic difficulties, mental health, physical health, and just your basic survival. You know, I think about Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs and how all of that has been uh, sacrificed by so many Afghanis uh, who had no choice. Um, well, so 9-11 happened and the U.S. immediately went into two countries that had nothing to do with 9-11. They went into Iraq and they went into Afghanistan. And um, they were 
going into both places to um, save the people. Um, and I'm not saying that the people in Iraq were in a good situation. Saddam Hussein was awful and murdered many, many, many people. There was mass genocide happening in Iraq. Um, and in Afghanistan, the Taliban was mistreating women and there was genocide of the Azara community as well by their hands. Um, but the U.S. really, really played the narrative of the damsel in distress and we need to go in and save these damsels in distress. And like that story is very patriarchal and very easy for people to eat up and relate to like these poor women, we must go in and save them. Um, and that there was a lot of support from U.S. citizens to, to go to this war because of that. Um, and in reality, there's many reports that came out and of Afghanistan and in many countries where the U.S. goes into where there was actually a lot of violence by the soldiers against the women there. Um, and so it really wasn't that much more safe. Um, in places maybe like Kabul, it might have been safer, but in the other, in the outskirts, in the tribal areas, it was not safer. Um, and so they really did use it as an excuse to extract the minerals to do what they want to do. And the, there are many other places in the world where women are being treated horribly. Even here, women are treated pretty terribly in the U.S., and they're not doing anything to save us here, and they're not doing anything to save anyone anywhere else. So it's kind of a poor excuse, but a majority of Americans, including Afghans that live in diaspora, have fallen for that pretty hard. Um, and like this understanding of what liberation is for women is also a topic of conversation right now. What does liberation look like? Does it look like Western culture being enforced on us? Like we get to wear miniskirts? Or does it look like we have choice? I think in reality, it's we want to be safe. And right, I see a note here that Don saying they sold us on terrorism. They absolutely did. We're damsels in distress because our men are terrorists. They're terrorists. Um, and that's a false narrative. Yes, there are bad people, but there's also really amazing people. I think that was like the what they I mean, what they sold in America was they were very strategic because America really bought into this idea. You know, it was fear. It was fear mongering, right? I remember being in college when Bush was running. Bush number two was running. There were so many people on, on campus at St. Thomas where I went who were saying stuff like, if we don't go there, they're going to come here. Mm. And that's why, and that, that's why they were pushing for folks to vote. For Bush, because um, the fear that the violence would come to to American grounds, and then there was a lot of like, well, aren't you a feminist? They force their women to cover every part of their body, and how can you say you're a feminist? And that and that was really sold hard, and it was bought by a lot of people. Nasreen, your comment really has me thinking about. Quite a bit. Your comment about save us from our dangerous men. And I think about how that has also been a false narrative here in the United States, dating back to the 1800s and through today, where the white population, particularly white media and filmmakers, have really depicted black men as a threat, as a, a black man being a threat to white women. And in fact, the first 
film that went mainstream in the theaters in the early 1900s was Birth of a Nation, which which solely really focused on that false narrative of having black men be predators of white women. And this historical false narrative continues today to this year, 2021. It's really unfortunate that this is the way the world works. And like every day I wake up and I'm like, I wake up and I'm like, am I in a dream? (laughs) Like when it's happening, when it's happening live to you, like this erasure of our existence is happening live right now in front of our faces. And it's, and we're, we're far away. We can't even fight there. We're here. Um, and we can only do what we can do. But every morning I wake up and I'm like, oh shit, this isn't a dream. This is reality. Um, it's pretty heartbreaking. Nasreen, can you speak about the trauma that folks are experiencing and have experienced over an entire generation? And I can hear the pain and hurt in your voice as well as in Azra's voice as well. Can you speak about how for, for Afghanis, they've, they've gone through one war after another and how that has shaped the lives of people and how that has continued to be a burden today and how folks are trying to still function with all of that heavy, heavy burden? Well, it's been several generations now that have been living in this. Um, my parents came to the U.S. Um, in the 70s. So they were here before the war started. Um, my mom was the only one from her immediate family that was here. She came when she was 18 and she came in the mid-70s. Um, and so my mom was here for all of it. And my mom gets a phone call or sees it on the news. She saw it on the news at the U.S was going into Afghanistan. Um, And I feel like people, she was more fearful of the U.S. going in than with Russia being there or with the USSR being there um, or the Soviets. But so um, for her, it was very scary. She was a teenager. She was in a country she didn't know, a very different culture. um, And her whole entire family was there. And so my mom was actively working on getting her family out as fast as she could. Um, And she managed to get all of them out. All of her siblings are now um, either in Europe or in the U.S. Um, Her brother has asylum in Germany, but he has chosen, his wife refuses to leave the fight. She won't, which a lot of Afghans are like that. They won't leave. They want to fight for their land. And she is one of those people. And so um, he's back in Afghanistan and he's staying with her. Um, but there are several, like being a diaspora kid and not ever getting to go back to your home and ever experiencing your culture around you has been very hard for me. Very hard for me. Um, Arash was born there and he, he was born when the war started. So he actually lived there for seven, seven years. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about like what it felt like having to flee war? Yeah, I mean, I it, it's being in the middle of a war is not something that I think a lot of people can understand really in the U.S. because we never really experienced war. Okay, not true, right? Just like unless you corrected me, there's been war on black, brown, and indigenous folks since the, since day one. 
but the average white American has never experienced war, so it's hard for them to even have some kind of grasp. But, you know, for me, I remember as a kid, uh, you know, I came from a very privileged family, one, but still, I remember as a kid, you know, nights that I would, we would have to go to the basement because there were rockets flying in, uh, you know, hitting the house next to us. I remember one time I had to wake up in the morning and the house next to us or behind us was in rubbles. And we had to go see if there's anybody that survived. And me as a six-year-old seeing limbs out of the rubble, you know, and that, that has always stuck with me throughout all these years. Um, every time I remember when I was with my sister, it was the middle of the day. My parents went out for like an hour or two. I was like five or six. My sister was like one or two, barely born. And a few houses down, they put a bomb in the house. So the house exploded. And me as a five, six-year-old, I go into my dad's closet, pull out his gun, lay down to my little, next, next to my little sister to protect her in case they come into our house. I'm a five or six-year-old kid. What the hell do I know about these kinds of things, you know? But that was my natural reaction to go do that. Um, and then, you know, as I get, old, get older, coming to the U.S., the sound of thunder would always scare me. The sound of firecrackers would always scare me because those sounds always reminded me back of like bombs exploding, rockets falling at us, you know? Uh, it took me to my 30s to actually finally get over some of that stuff. Um, so it, the trauma is real, even though I came from a very privileged family and I was able to leave most Afghans, you know, they didn't have that privilege of leaving. And then some of the ones that did had to go through like Pakistan and Iran and they live, you know, miserably in those countries, you know, barely surviving. My family was lucky. We were able to just get on a flight and go to Europe for three years. And then we came to the U.S. when I was 10 years old. But yeah, I can't even imagine what everyday Afghans have to go through and still going through, you know. Arash, as you talk about the PTSD and trauma, I want to remind our listeners that what you're really referring to is chronic PTSD, meaning that it's ongoing. Typically, you, we think about PTSD as, as one event, one set of circumstances, and it's done. The, that set of circumstances, there's closure to it. But in your circumstance and, and all of these other Afghanis uh, in the diaspora, back in Afghanistan, here in the U.S., it is ongoing because you are reliving it with every single conflict and, and turmoil that comes up. And it's, it's a continual exposure to this that, that you can't escape, and there's no closure to that. And I, I see it as overwhelming as an outsider, but I'm also looking at you, Nas, uh, Reen, when you and you clearly are being triggered by this. And I, I am so, so sorry that we are bringing this up for you in the way that it is. I'm hurting for the people that are, I'm scared for the people that are there. Like his story isn't unique and it's so much worse for so many people right now. And it's really, it's really scary. I thank you guys for, for coming on this show and, and talking with us about it. I think a lot of us, um, as we think about it now, we recall the images of folks chasing after the planes 
um, that were leading. And I remember when that first, when I first saw those images, I thought that they were replaying images from Laos. Uh, when the Hmong were fleeing and the last American plane left with everybody that they were going to take and everybody else was, you know, figure it out, uh, make it to the refugee camps and maybe we'll help you there. Uh, and my dad said his heart was beating so fast when he saw that footage and just, you know, reliving, having gone through that and and I remember just a lot of people on social media being like, you know, we need to take these refugees and like, you know, the Hmong people, we need to, we need to see, you know, people on social media were just like, this is, this is so relatable for the Hmong people seeing this, that how can, how can we help these Afghan refugees that we, that should be coming here and just seeing that solidarity, you know, I was so happy because I think a, a lot of the other stuff I've been seeing is like, oh, we don't need more refugees. We can't even take care of our own people. Why should we be opening the doors to other people? You know, it's not our fault or people just not even understanding the history of American interference. Uh, and then just to see that solidarity was like really touching. And then I know that you're organizing by the time this show airs, um, the event will have been over. But you are organizing a demonstration, and it's called Hands Off Afghanistan. Can you tell me what that means? Well, Hands Off Afghanistan came about. It was actually something that he came up with because we kept seeing Save Afghanistan and like No to Taliban and all these other things. But there's it's there's not just one player. There's so many people that are playing chess in Afghanistan for many many years. And so hands off Afghanistan is telling everyone to just back off, back off. The rally is a, is being organized. There's um, rallies all over the world that are happening on August 28th to bring awareness to what's going on in Afghanistan right now. Um, and ours specifically is um, a rally that is for awareness as well as for communities who have also gone through this. We're trying to build solidarity with the Hmong community, with the Somali community, with the Black community, with the Indigenous community, Native community here, like uh, with the with the, the our brothers and sisters that are south of us, like so many of us have already gone through this. Um, so we're trying to find a way to build and show solidarity between all of us, as well as um, to remember that a lot of people have died, millions of people have died. And millions more are going to die. Um, and we shouldn't forget that. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, uh, 10,000 people landing in Fort McCoy soon. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of those folks are also going to be coming to Minneapolis, the Twin City. And that's in, in Wisconsin? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, the American planes are bringing at least 10,000 people to Fort McCoy. Um, for one son. So That's the report that we've received anyway. So there's going to be Afghans, you know, and, and in these neighborhoods, uh, there might be the next refugee community that comes into these neighborhoods. Uh, you know, we, people need more awareness of cultural understandings and the people that are coming, the problem likely coming over here. Um, and also the thing you've been mentioned about the planes, I just kind of thought about this when you said that, you know, I, I made the mistake in actually looking at the comments and I see a lot of white folks making comments like, 
how stupid can you be that like these backwards people, like, you know, how, why are they even trying to grab into a plane? But like, Never read comments. Never read comments. I know, I know. <laughs> First mistake I made. But like, but you can show that like how desperate these folks really are. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. To leave to, you know, risk their lives to when they hold on to a plane that's about to take off, you know. You've never felt that desperation, you know, that. They've never had to. This is the quintessential definition of privilege. Americans here have not had to endure the level of desperation regarding their safety for themselves and their children and having to make these life and death decisions just to survive. Help us understand how we can be there for you and for others who are coming to our country. And when you do so, talk to us about how to do that in a way that, that does not uh, perpetuate that white savior approach that so often is found in the US and how we are indoctrinated along those lines. I think ways of supporting the community, we are doing a lot of organizing right now to um, try to help the um, refugees transition. Um, they are going to be in need of everything because majority of the ones that are coming have a suitcase or nothing at all. Um, and so we actually started um, an Instagram page called at um, Hands Off Afghanistan. Um, and on that page, we are updating it with the ne current the needs um, and it is organized by Afghans in the diaspora. So we will be, once the refugees come, we are going to work to try to connect with them directly to get, um, to understand what they actually need as support. Um, so that page will be updated whenever we need, we find out the needs of these folks. Um, I have been in contact with Minneapolis public schools to see if there is a plan to, um, help assist these these youth that are coming in to help them get into school and to help them, it's going to be very much culture shock for them. Um, and so what is there a plan right now in Minneapolis public schools, which I don't think there is. Um, and I am a little bit surprised by that because Minneapolis has been a hub for we've welcomed Minnesota has welcomed refugees from many countries and we haven't figured out how to support them we really need to have a committee of some sort that is advocating for this um, because being a child of war, like that's a lot, that's a lot of trauma. Um, and so we need to recognize that and educate our educators. Nazreen, they haven't figured out how to deal with us. No, I know. And we're from here. So you're right. You're right. I've it, been in trainings. I, I'm, I'm just trying to put it in line with you know, with the reality of living in a in a country that was colonized by European Americans, they haven't they haven't been able to deal with us, the populations that were already here and the ones that they brought over, let alone new ones. I mean, so so you know the the disparities that exist here in our educational system are horrendous unless you're a white Minnesota. Yep. And then the rest of us just fall to the wayside. 
So, you know, hurry up, welcome, hurry up, come over to Minnesota and then join the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's a sad state of affairs, but yeah. that's how it works. Yeah. So, you know, cause I've noticed that, um, yeah, you know, cause of course, you know, the, the articles come out, Catholic charities, um, international Institute of, of Minnesota, you know, all, these organizations are stepping up to help with the mm-hmm. kind of legal paperwork to help folks become, you know, acclimate, but uh, it's going to take donations and the rest of the communities to kind of step in. Um, the rest of the systems, um, you know, until we until we can work together to to get those systems to respond to to anyone that's not a white Minnesotan, you know, we're still fighting that battle. Yeah, for so, sure. So, you know, we can we can um, you know, we'll we'll welcome the we'll welcome the help when they come over to join the fight. Yeah. But I, I'm sorry, I I had to step in, you know. No. It, it's no. it's not a case of not being surprised. It's like, come on, where are we? Right? Yeah, you're and, right. Uh, you're right. I'm I shouldn't be surprised. I shouldn't be surprised, especially with what I've already experienced only in my first week <laughs> of being present there. And I'm like, what is happening here? <laughs> this is wild. Um, but uh, you're right. You're right. Um, we are doing some other organizing though. So we are trying, I'm trying to get um, folks vaccinated. I'm trying to organize some COVID vaccine um, events. Once we understand where we can go to do this stuff but we're kind of just waiting. We're all waiting to see when they're arriving and what we can do. Um, Cause we, they, we've been told that they have arrived, um, but I don't think anyone has been able to be in contact with anyone quite yet. Um, so they're kind of in isolation. Are you partnering with any of the nonprofits locally who have historically helped refugees and resettled them in our community? We are not. We are working as grassroots community members who are just trying to support our community. Um, we really, everything that we get, every fund that we get, everything will go directly towards the refugees and not to pay salaries, salaries for director, oh, for, sure. for the, the, all the weight on the top. <laughs> so we're really trying to do, we're trying to do some like actual community support which is part of the reason for this rally is to try to like build this community that can catch, catch them before they fall too hard. You know, I've gotten, I've heard from friends and family who are like, what, what can we do? What can we do? And it's like, I don't know. Um, you know, and so I am sure our listeners are feeling the same way. So thank you, Luz, for asking that. And, and thank you, you guys for doing it. I mean, really, uh, you know, it's, it's hard work and you you've got your own bills to pay in being sure that that money really goes to those who are coming here is, is great. I also read that Airbnb is providing free housing for up to 20,000 refugees from Afghanistan. And they are offering this at no cost globally, wherever there are Airbnb properties. So this is a, a plea to our listeners, if any of our listeners have an Airbnb home or property that they want to 
be a part of this program and offering free housing for our new community members uh, from Afghan, then I am asking and offering that up for you to make sure that you contact Airbnb and sign up for that. Before we adjourn, I really want to narrow in on that question about the media and what media channels do you suggest we turn to so that it is not filtered through this Western lens of white centrality so that we we understand what's going on on the ground, we understand what's going on from a grassroots level? That's a hard question. There's really no uh, single answer to that, to be honest with you. Uh, personally, I go through different uh, sites, different uh, I go to Al Jazeera, I go to, most of the time, to be honest with you, I look at my Twitter and the people that I trust. And if they're posting something, I might read it. That's how I get most of my information. There are a lot of rep- are people that are um, active on social media right now that are present there as well. Um, and those folks are actually doing a good job of reporting what they're seeing and the stories that they've been hearing from their friends as well. Um, and we can um, share that with you. I feel like my favorite one is at Blingistan because um, she's very... She's not afraid of anything. So she will speak very directly and very bluntly about what's going on. And she will co- she covers everything. One of my favorites is uh, somebody named Khaibar Khan. Uh, and he's a journalist in Afghanistan who's been reporting live. He's kind of like, uh, you know, Howard Zinn, the people's uh, history. He's kind of like mm-hmm. the people's history of everyday Kabul, people in Kabul. He just goes around and talks to everyday people. I think it's very important important um that th- there's a through line here that's very important as as the work that you're doing to to build the the safety net or build the space for the folks who are coming here and that we've seen with every single refugee population the flotilla of black refugees from the south that came in here faced a community that first that first on paper on intent <laughs> try to, 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 to say in words that there's some welcoming and then that community gets here and faces the pushback of why are you here? The same thing happened with Hmong refugees, Somali refugees, where part of our community on, on, the, on the intent side says, yes, we want you, while the community that they encounter when they get here is, a, is somewhere between you all are welcome and why are you here and this pushback that makes folks have to build their own as opposed to being able to get the, the structure that goes up. I think there's a very important piece that you're bringing to this conversation, and that is that we have gone into these spaces for a whole lot of intent, real or not, excuses or not, and not, and we are not being driven by our responsibility to the impact. And I think that's important because one of the huge cultural differences between my brothers and sisters in, in South Africa, where I've worked for a long time, and my brothers and sisters um, in, in Swana, I'm using that language now, thank you for that, um, uh, one of the huge differences between our communities and our cultures, between the West and, and, and Swana, is the, this idea we have a legal system that's based on intent. We have cultural groups that we're dealing with right now that are focused primarily on impact. I don't care what your intention is, and great, pat on the back if you had a good intention, but if your impact was negative, then you have to address the impact. And you are asking a bold question, and that is for us as a community to deal with the impact of our past actions. And that's a hard ask. 
And so I just want to, I want to, I want to name that you've, you've put onto the table, a through line that needs to me needs to be said and needs to be addressed. This, we need to come together as a community and deal with the impact of our actions and own our actions. Absolutely. As we come to a close to our segment today, I invite both of you to share with us your final words. I want you to convey to our listeners what you really want us to understand in the context that you frame for us. We may not have asked all the questions that are ruminating in our listeners' minds uh, because clearly there's, there's quite a bit to cover in a short period of time. But we want you to share your key messages. This is a safe space again. Um, you can be as forthright as, and honest as you would like to be um, and speak to us from your heart. Help us understand what you really want us to know in your parting words. Um, I think it's really important for us to keep having these kinds of spaces, you know, uh, because what we really need to do as somebody who's been organized for over 20 years now is we need to build our own because we can't keep, uh, you know, asking for handouts from Whitey. You know, we can't keep asking, to, you know, all they're going to do is throw us their crumbs, you know, and we're going to fight amongst each other for those crumbs. So we got to keep building amongst each other. We got to be there for each other like y'all are with this, with this podcast. I've, I've heard this podcast and I think I've heard about Luz getting in trouble for something that you've said in the past. And I, I, I didn't know who, what that was going to get into, but this is, <laughs> this is, this is now I know what I'm getting into. And I'm like, I'm, I'm very appreciative of being part of this. Uh, so thank you for the opportunity to talk about our story a little bit. Uh, but I hope, you know, we keep giving each other, uh, voices, allowing our voices to be heard. Uh, giving each other safe spaces and platforms that we need to uh, talk about what we need as a community and keep building amongst each other. So um, I don't know. Let's keep let's keep doing this and keep doing the work that you all doing. So I appreciate it. Please don't forget that this is going on because <laughs> um, people tend to forget because then there's a they figured out a pretty good uh, um, system here where they're constantly always putting us all in panic mode. Um, and there's panics all over the world and there's fires all over the world that we have to keep putting out together. Um, and I don't want to us to forget about what's going on in Afghanistan. And I definitely want us to continue bringing awareness to the Azara genocide that is happening, um, that has been happening in Afghanistan. Because um, this is no one, not enough people are talking about it. Thank you both for your powerful words. And thank you for sharing your wisdom, your counsel, and quite honestly, your pain. It was very palpable as you've described the turmoil and the trauma that you've, you've endured as well as your families. And Arash, I don't mind getting into good trouble as Congressman John Lewis has invited us, invited us all to do. And if either of you or both of you are uh, up for getting into some more good trouble together, <laughs> you are more than welcome to come back and be our guests again at Counter Stories. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any opinions and comments I make 
are solely my own and should not be attributed to my employer. My name is Anthony Galloway, senior exit. My name is Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and executive director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. Don Eubanks, uh, associate at Dendros Group and member of the Malax Band of Ojibwe Indians. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. I am Arash Yusufi, uh, and I am uh, thankful for being on the show. I'm Nasreen Sajadi. Um, I am an educator, and I'm also very thankful to have been here. Thank you for the honor of having you as guest today. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>